This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamprin today, and we have a full lineup today. We are talking about the Hamilton Bulldogs playing an outdoor game at Tim Hortons Field after the Leafs and Sabres. We're talking about number anxiety, math anxiety. It's a real thing. People freak out about having to do math. Why? Well, maybe you know if you're one of them like me. Uh, Ukraine, the situation, very fluid, very scary right now. We're going to talk about that. License stickers on your license plates. No longer have to pay for those. Is that a good thing? Sounds like it until the bill comes due, right? We're going to be chatting about a new poll that shows many Canadians have altered the way they shop and eat because they can't afford to keep going the way they were anymore. And we will be chatting, speaking of affordability, about houses. Four out of 10 Canadians, another poll, but four out of 10 Canadians, young Canadians who are buying homes, getting help from mom and dad. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Watching everything very closely right now to see what the next step is going to be uh, between Russia and Ukraine. This thing is, um, well, I mean, it seems to be one of those situations that all of a sudden you could hit refresh on your computer and you could see reports of something disastrous happening. It just, it, it has that feel that we are just teetering here on the precipice of something really um, regrettable that could happen over there. I don't know if Russia or if Vladimir Putin would describe it as regrettable, but I think many people in the world would. And so what, what does the rest of the world do? What can the rest of the world do? It doesn't appear that too many countries are lining up with armies. In fact, none really are. So what are the steps? I want to bring in David Carmont. He's a professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. As you say, very interesting time. Well, you know, and, and here's the thing. I mean, by the time we finish talking in seven or eight minutes, we could be in mm. a different position. I mean, it's that it's that stressful right now. And so let's go down to the States first, because Joe Biden had said, President Biden had said, you know what, we're going to be hitting Russia with sanctions if they cross the border. Well, they did technically cross the border. They moved some troops into Russian friendly areas of Ukraine, but they crossed the border. He did announce some sanctions, but they weren't, I don't know what description you would use. They weren't overwhelming. They were like a, an appetizer, I guess, of sanctions. Is that going to do anything or is that just going to make Putin go, okay, is that all you got? I think both sides know that there's more to come in the event that uh, Russia decides that there's uh, more opportunity in Ukraine. Uh, in other words, moving beyond the land that they, they already occupy. Russian forces, as you know, have already moved into areas claimed by separatists that have been under their control for pretty much eight years. And you're quite right. The initial sanctions were directed at those individuals who uh, claim control of the, the region that is now disputed, the so-called Donbass. And then subsequent to that, Biden did announce sanctions directed towards some of Putin's uh, colleagues, the oligarchs, the people who hold the purse strings, and then uh, also several banks. But there's no question that the U.S. in particular is holding back in the event that there is further escalation. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is an all or nothing proposition. There's much more to come. Is is that the right way to do it? Is a measured response as opposed to going in with everything all at once? Is this the better way to do it? And I, I, on the one hand, I think you know you want to really let him know don't go any further, and that means hit him with everything. On the other hand, if you hit him with everything and it doesn't hurt enough, then what's to stop him from going further? Well, there is partly that. There's also uh, a real deep concern uh, in the West, particularly within the United States, this is going to impact their economies directly, and there already is. 
I mean, we're going to see inflation. Gas prices at the pump are likely to increase. Uh, Biden himself has already announced that uh, they're going to ease off on taxes at the gas pump. So they're, they're fully aware that anything that goes beyond this is going to have a direct impact on the, the economies of those countries that are, are affected by the, uh, the, the loss of uh, petroleum exports to, to, uh, to the West. In particular, I think he's looking more closely at the allies within, within Western Europe, Germany and so on. The Germans have convinced themselves that they can move on beyond sort of a connection with Russia. I'm not so sure that that's, that's going to be the case. I think there's a real interdependence there. But nevertheless, I think part of it is a hesitation to go all in and then find yourself having done considerable damage to your, to your own economy. That's the, the the gas the the petroleum issue is a huge one, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of countries that you might say, "All right, you need to jump in and join the United States in sanctions against Russia." And really, if there is a massive, overwhelming worldwide issue uh, uh, force here, um, this would be something that would be impactful. But there's a lot of countries that really need Russian gas, and it would be risky for them to do that, right? Well, again, I mean, I, I think the the, uh, the Western European countries are convinced that they can bypass the uh, the flow of gas from Russia in the long run. Of course, the short term impact is going to be quite serious. Turning to the question of whether Russia will move uh, further into Ukraine, I mean, just to, this morning, Ukraine's announced a state of emergency, something Canada is familiar with uh, in an unfortunate way. Well, this is a cause for concern because they have real, I think they have uh, deep concern that Russia is going to move either directly or indirectly into other areas within Ukraine proper. And the next step would be, of course, something beyond a state of emergency, for example, martial law, which would be a suspension of habeas corpus and so on. So I, I do believe that there's more to come here. And I, I think that uh, the sanctions and other threats that the West are imposing on on uh, on uh, Russia are, are, are yet to be seen. I, th I think that what we're going to see is a further and deeper escalation. Uh, unfortunately, there's both parties are locked into this such that it's very difficult to uh, pull yourself out from a position in which you are experiencing significant damage. Mm -hmm. um, Putin has announced he's open to diplomacy, but that's not really clear uh, of a clear message. Are they willing to make concessions? And furthermore, is, is the U.S. in particular willing to make concessions? And there's no clear sense that either party is prepared to make any kind of considerable concession addressing the needs and interests of, of the other and that's well, where we stand yeah. stand today yeah yeah and you've got china now seeming to back well not seeming china mm -hmm. saying russia has a point here so you've got china backing russia and you've got other parts of the world backing the states and the, the other people i mean it's 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 very frightening right now last thing just before we go because we only have a minute mm -hmm. canada has also announced sanctions against russia mm -hmm. it, it, it is can Canada's sanctions be meaningful in any way, or is this is this more of a a show that we very strongly disapprove of this, but we don't really expect Russia to be hurt in any way by what we're doing? Can these be impactful? I think it's a bit of both. We have to send, uh, at least our Canadian government believes that we have to send a, a direct message, a clear message. And that's more... Uh, more important to our allies than it is to Russia, that we need to be seen to be standing aside, alongside our allies. But we're also deploying uh, more forces, although they won't arrive for some time, to NATO countries. The reality is that Canada, like most of these other countries that are posing sanctions, are not prepared to go to war directly uh, in Ukraine. Um, and so we haven't, I wouldn't say we've abandoned Ukraine, but so much 
as we're not prepared to actually engage in, in direct fighting with Russia. So it remains to be seen whether the economic costs are sufficient to get Russia to uh, draw down and withdraw. And I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Russia's dug in and uh, we're in for a very wild ride. And I hope we can talk about this at a later stage. Yeah, and, and we got to run, but you're right about dug in because I don't, I mean, you know, from what we know, only from coverage and stuff of Vladimir Putin, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that once he's taken a position wants to look like he's backed down. And that's a real problem. If you have someone who doesn't want to lose face or back down, there's only one direction to go then, and that's forward. Exactly. And I think what we have here is a situation where this is far more important to Russia than than we previously thought uh, was the case. And so uh, the willingness of Russia and Putin in particular to back down is, uh, is what's at stake here. And I don't see any clear indication they're willing to do that. In fact, I think the longer they wait and hold on, the more damage they can do to both Ukraine and uh, other economies that are engaged in this conflict. David Carmont from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Very much appreciate the time today. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have now learned that the rumored cancellation of the license plate renewal stickers and fees that go along with it is true. We are no longer going to have to pay to renew our license plates and put those little stickers on, which is going to save people $120 a year, unless you live way up in Northern Ontario, then it's $60 a year. Uh, By the way, that is our Twitter poll question today, if you want to jump in on that one while we're talking about it. Are you happy you will save some money by no longer having to pay for license plate stickers, or do you simply expect the government will get that money from you some other way? That is a Twitter poll. You can go on 900CHML Twitter and uh, cast your vote. In the meantime, let me bring in Jay Goldberg from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Ontario Director. Jay, how are you this morning? Doing well. How are you? I am great. Um, I think a lot of people are saying, well, terrific. I save 120 bucks a year. Um, so where is the government going to recoup that money? Well, obviously, we're talking about taxpayers' money, and so it's really not a question of recouping. It's a question of how do we uh, lower the deficit while still delivering for taxpayers. This is great news. Uh, It means if you're in a family with two cars, you're going to save $240 a year. That's very significant when we're looking at the kind of inflation and cost of living crisis that we've got right now. Uh, So Doug Ford has a lot of options. We know that the deficit has already been shrinking. We'd like to see him lay out a plan to get to balance. Um, But there are some other ways, such as ending corporate welfare, such as ending giving money away to political parties, uh, bringing bureaucrat salaries in line with the private sector. So there's a lot of things that the government can do to make up this revenue uh, and a lot of things they should do and not take money from taxpayers another way. And that, I think, is the concern because I, I'm I'm with you and I think a lot of other people are too. We've just gone through this COVID scenario, this COVID time where we have just flushed so much money out the door, like it's been unbelievable provincially and federally. It's time to start slowing that down and bringing it back is is getting to balance enough or do we have to go beyond that and start chipping away at the debt and the deficit in Ontario well we do have to go beyond that we're facing a very difficult situation Ontario is the most indebted subnational unit in the entire world that's more than California that's more than any non-nation uh, we've got over 400 billion dollars in debt uh, it's not all Doug Ford's fault we've 
been seeing debt accumulate over time under the McGinty and Wynn governments as well. But it is time to confront the deficit. Um, we want to get to balance. The, the, the numbers are suggesting that the Ford government could balance the budget in the next couple of years if they're prudent. Uh, and we want to see that. But then beyond that, of course, yes, we do need to have surpluses to get that debt down because we're spending more than a billion dollars a month on debt interest in Ontario. And that's before the expected interest rate hikes that we're expecting to see from the Bank of Canada throughout the year. So again, I think that a lot of people are going to be very happy, as you said, with saving the $120 a year. And honestly, who wouldn't? I mean, anytime you can save some money out of your own pocket, that's great. But I, I, I do look at this and I think to myself, I, I just, I wonder, there's gotta be somewhere else we're gonna get nailed for this. Right, there's got to be a trade-off somewhere that we're going to give this back, and then tucked into some bill somewhere, there's going to be something else that raises the 1.1 billion dollars a year or whatever it is that that comes from here. Uh, there, no one gets something for nothing ever. Well, it's it's really a question of not taking money out of taxpayers' pockets to begin with, so it's not really something that's given by the government. Um, but certainly, there's uh, concern in the past that we've seen with different governments that they'll uh, lower taxes in one place and hike them somewhere else. And we have to make sure, you know, Doug Ford said yesterday, uh, the people can spend their money a lot better than government. Uh, in many cases, he's right. Uh, and so we do want to see this money in taxpayers' pockets. This is good news. But I would say that we're going to have to stay vigilant for sure. We're going to have to wait until we see the budget. Uh, we're going to have to wait until we see election promises and even after the election. Uh, to make sure that the government does not raise taxes by a billion dollars in some other area. And so it's going to take vigilance for sure. Um, but, you know, we're getting the good news now. That's great. Let's just, we'll keep an eye on it and make sure uh, that if Doug Ford tries to raise taxes another way, we hold him accountable for that. Would we find that though? Because I don't even know off the top of my head what the Fed, what the provincial budget is, but it's, you know, in the hundreds of billions of dollars and to slip a billion in there somewhere in new revenues would be incredibly easy without being noticed. Well, certainly uh, there's ways to do that. We keep a close eye on what's uh, contained in the budget. Um, and what I would say is that we have not seen, uh, since uh, Premier Ford came into office, we have not seen any kind of tax hike. Uh, certainly he hasn't delivered on the tax cut promises he made in 2018. We haven't seen the gas tax cut. We're hoping for that in the budget. We haven't seen an income tax cut, which they promised in 2018. But thus far, we haven't seen any real tax hikes under the Ford government. And we are hoping that that continues. Do you expect that those things that you just mentioned, the um, the gas price cuts and the income tax, do you, do you expect now that those happen? And, and like this one is, we know there's an election coming up. And, and look, I think everyone's going to be somewhat cynical and say, there's an election coming up. So this one is really easy if you are someone who is going to save this money. It, it's not a, you know, f to cut five cents a liter off gas, that's little by little drip, drip, drip through the year. You might save money, but it's not going to have the splash. This has a big splash. I wonder if those other things are going to happen now. Well, in November, uh, Premier Ford said he was going to implement the gas tax cut by the end of March. If he doesn't do so, obviously, that's um, breaking his word that he made to taxpayers. We're hoping to see it. And yeah, 5.7 cents a liter uh, may not sound like a lot, but when you're filling up gas in your tank, we're facing absolute record high prices. 
Uh, they're the highest they've ever been in the history of the country. Uh, we're seeing very significant bills that taxpayers are getting when they're going to fill up their tanks. Uh, and as we said, we have an affordability crisis. So if you have two cars and you're filling up once a week each car, you could save $400 a year. So the savings from uh, lowering the gas tax would actually be greater than the savings from removing these sticker fees. Uh, so that's absolutely something we want to see by the time the budget comes down next month. Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for the time, Jay. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new poll out by Angus Reid. And usually, you know, when you hear four out of five something in a poll, it's four out of five dentists, and you know, suggest you use this toothpaste or something. It's, and the number is used because it's such an overwhelming number, it seems, I guess, that if four out of five of anybody say this, well, it must be true. Well, four out of five Canadians now say, according to this poll, that they have altered their food buying habits due to the rising costs of just feeding your family. If you've been to a store lately, if you've been to a grocery store, you know what I'm talking about. You know that costs are going up and in some cases going up a lot. It is a changing world we're in right now. Janet Music is Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. She's one of the authors of the report. She joins us now. Janet, how are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. Really appreciate you jumping on. Uh, I was just saying before you joined us, to get four out of five people agreeing on almost anything is, is rare. But this seems like it is really becoming a huge issue now, just being able to afford to eat the way you have before. That's right. And so, I mean, it affects everyone, regardless of their income or their region, we all have to eat. And, you know, as prices of food go up, we're noticing in Canada that our wages aren't keeping pace with that. And so it's affecting, you know, people on the margins, of course, uh, which is concerning. But now people in the middle are starting to feel that squeeze. And uh, we were just saying that 62%, according to this poll, say they're going to be eating out less. That is terrible news if you own or work in the restaurant industry. That's right. And and restaurants have really been kind of taking the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, you know, lockdowns and then labor shortages and then, of course, supply chain issues. And now, you know, people are just trying to save money anywhere they can. Uh, And so that is bad news for the restaurant industry. The biggest number here, I think, uh, I may have missed one, but by far the one that is just, you know, four out of five is the headliner, but you can go even higher than that. According to this poll, with families with children under 13 in the household, 89% say they've changed their food shopping habits. That is essentially almost everybody. I mean, that it, it is really hitting that broadly. That's right. And so, you know, I raised a teenager and many listeners will have, uh, you know, had a teenager in the house and, you know, they consume a lot of food. And so you have to do, <laughs> right? You have to do, really what, do. You know, keep them healthy. You know, you're going to have to adjust your spending habits. And, you know, I noticed that, you know, 46% said they switched to cheaper or lower quality brands. And, and I think this is really an opportunity for those private labels. And I don't necessarily think they're lower quality. Yes, they're cheaper, but if they're still as nutritious and they taste fine, then, you know, I don't see a problem with that if you can stretch your dollar a little bit further. It probably just means reading more labels, right? Because as you just said, if you've got a teenager, you want it to be healthy. You don't just want junk. And so it's, if it's going to be cheaper, why is it cheaper? And you got to find out. 
Exactly. Exactly. Because they, you know, teenagers will eat frozen pizza from now until the cows come home. And so, you know, parents are really concerned about that. And fruits and vegetables, you know, we ship those in in the winter months from from down south and, and shipping costs and labor shortages and the price of energy. It all adds up at the grocery store. Are, are you suggesting it's only teenagers who will eat frozen pizza till the cows come home? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> uh, just before, just before we go, because this is, um, again, this is this is such an interesting uh, snapshot of where we are, and the the fact that twenty, where's the number here? Uh, twenty, uh, where's the number? I've lost it. Twenty one percent are buying less fresh fruit and vegetables. That, all right. So all the other things we are told constantly. Uh, obesity is a problem in the States and here, uh, diet is a problem, eat more fresh fruit and vegetables. And then the prices go up. It, it, it's like two things battering into each other. The two issues that it, it's really hard to resolve those two. It is, it is. And that is concerning, right? And so cutting back on alcohol at 25%, you know, maybe that's good advice for a lot of people, but you know, there is kind of an answer to that and in, in, in fresh frozen, so frozen vegetables or frozen fruits, you can, you know, you can put frozen fruit mm-hmm. in a smoothie and still get that kind of nutrition that you need. So they don't always have to be fresh. You can kind of switch to the there frozen. There are ways, right? yeah. Yeah. And, you know, summer is coming up and so people will be growing their own vegetables uh, here and local food will, will start kind of showing up on the shelves and in farmer's markets. So, uh, hopefully that is just a short-term number and people will be able to adapt, uh, you know, as the months go on. Janet Music, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So is it more difficult today to buy a home than it was for your parents? Well, of course it is, right? Of course it is, except we don't, for some reason, necessarily like to admit that things were easier in some ways for us. We we and our parents and our grandparents, we like to be the ones who walked uphill to school both directions in the snow and that whole story, right? We don't like to necessarily acknowledge that things could be more difficult in some ways. However, there is new information, there's a new poll out in which 90% of parents are agreeing it is more difficult to buy a home today than when they were their kids' age. I want to bring in Tim Hudak, who is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Tim, thanks for the time this morning. Yeah, of course, Scott. Good morning. Good morning, Hamilton. Well, yeah, excellent. Uh, I am, I'm not surprised. No one would be surprised by this, except for the fact that maybe now we've reached the point where we can all acknowledge, yeah, you know what, it is a little tougher today or a lot tougher today. Yeah, there's no doubt. Like when I bought my first home at, in 2002 in uh, in Niagara, Scott, did I, you know, it was my early 30s. I saved up enough money. I bought a home. I always wanted to do that. The investment paid off over time. And later, you know, Debbie and I had kids, got involved in the community. That's the great Canadian dream. And sadly, for the younger generation today, it is slipping further and further out of reach. Thank goodness some can tap into the bank of mom and dad to make that critical down payment afford the home, but a lot of other people totally falling behind. And is that, I mean, look, and you talk about the bank of mom and dad, let me just put some numbers here from this poll so people know that. Um, for a 44%, uh, no, sorry, four out of 10 people who bought a house, young people who bought a house were helped by their parents. Uh, those who were loaned money, it was about $41,000. Those who were given money, it was about $74,000. Uh, 
But to the idea that, uh, Tim, that this is becoming harder and harder, do you see light at the end of the tunnel? Is there something out there that makes us believe that we are simply in a really difficult moment and it's going to ease up all of a sudden? Or do we not see that? I am feeling uh, optimistic, uh, Scott, that we can turn the corner. Now, I'm a little bit more pessimistic with Hamilton, and we can come back to that uh, if you like. Um, Please. But here's the reason why, and thank you for walking through the statistics there. Um, the only way that many people, 4 in 10, are getting into the housing market today, and that was a survey of new homeowners from 18, and there are some 18-year-olds, God bless them, to 38, right? So that generation, two out of five, got money from the parents, and you talked about up to $72,000, uh, given to them as a gift, parents tapping into their own personal savings and RSPs because they believe in the dream of homeownership. They know what it does for stability. They know, it do, know what it does for long-term investment, and it's a place where you have your most precious memories and you can truly be yourself. Problem is we're not creating enough homes. So that is the, the crux of the issue. We built more homes, Scott, in 1970s than we did in the 2000s, 2000s, and 10s, and that's nuts with more people who are building fewer and fewer homes. So basic law of economics tells you you have more demand, less supply, prices go up. The hope, to the credit of the current uh, provincial government uh, and Housing Minister Steve Clark, they did actually pass new legislation called the More Homes, More Choice Act. We did last year have the highest number of homes built, over 100,000, uh, than 20 years ago. So there's a positive step forward, but we have a lot ahead of us before the keys get closer to hand for hardworking average families in our province. All right. Now, uh, look, it's, it's a morning show and we don't really like to uh, dump a uh, pot of sour milk on people's lap first thing in the morning <laughs> as they're getting ready for work. But you did mention that you were less optimistic about Hamilton. Uh, explain why. Yeah, the city of Hamilton is going the wrong way. You, you may remember a while ago that the city uh, council uh, voted not to expand the urban boundary. And uh, that is going to drive up uh, housing prices uh, even further and make the single family home uh, even harder to, to get. So while other communities are heading in the right direction, building more homes, welcoming new neighbors. Look, when I grew up in Niagara, you'd always expect that if you worked hard, you got your degree, a good job, you played by the rules, you could afford a, a home in the neighborhood you grew up in. That's not going to be in the case in Hamilton because they've gone in the opposite direction of the city council. But we are hopeful other municipalities will uh, open up for more housing and help bring that, gate, that great Canadian dream closer to hand for the hardworking families are following the rules. Do you believe, though, that uh, using Hamilton as the example, if you're going to stop the urban boundary, and look, that was a vigorous debate, and we know which way that went, and you just said it, there's got to be, so if you can't go out, you've got to go up. It, does that mean that people who complain or don't want to have high-rises or changes to their neighborhood, it's like, well, you got to have one or the other. Pick your poison, because you can't just say, no up, no out, there's no other, I don't know what the other option is. Underground, maybe, I don't know. You kind, There has to be something, right? <laughs> uh, that sounds like science fiction. Um, the, uh, so, so look, the reality is you need to have uh, both. And, and Scott, another reason why I, I do feel positive about the future, despite the struggles today, uh, the province of Ontario did uh, commission a housing affordability task force. Uh, I had the honor of serving on that task force. We did put out a report that came out uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, that, that paved the road for, you know, how can we bring more homes? We called for 1.5 million more homes over 10 years. It's 150,000 a year. And it's a combined set of tools. So, yeah, it's intensifying in urban areas. It's building up, particularly around transit stations, GO stations, uh, subways if you're in Toronto. But it, you also have to have a balance. You do need to have some of the land that's been approved for 
development that is not environmentally sensitive turned into housing as well. You need a range of affordable options, whether that's a single-family home, uh, a condo, a laneway home. We really need all hands on deck. We don't have an affordability problem. It's not an affordability nuisance. We're in a full-blown housing affordability crisis, and it's time for action. Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. As always, thanks for the time today. Have a great day. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This may apply to you. This may not apply to you. But I was reading a story the other day and um, boy, it, it applied to me. I'll tell you that because one of the reasons I got into journalism and into the media was once upon a time they said, hey, if you do that, you're not going to have to use numbers which seemed like a really great thing for me because math has never been my strong suit. There's a new survey out that says four in 10 people, 40% of people don't feel confident about using numbers in their everyday lives. Uh, 20% would actively seek other jobs that don't require numbers to be used. I don't know if that's possible anymore. Uh, I want to bring in Mary Reed, Dr. Mary Reed. She's an assistant professor in the teaching stream at the University of Toronto. She is an expert in teaching math in particular. Uh, Dr. Reed, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure to be here, Scott. So uh, maybe it's, I mean, you've dealt with this over and over and over. You teach this, but why do some people, I, I don't hear about people getting freaked out by writing an English paper to some degree, maybe, or doing a history. Why do numbers freak people out so much? Math anxiety is very unique because it really does. There's so many complex layers here. You know, you've got performance anxiety. You've got fear of the numbers, the phobia of doing poorly on a test. And quite often when people are working with numbers and the anxiety takes over And when you're trying to solve a problem, but you've got this anxiety that's taking over, it's taking up the working memory, which is required in order to solve a problem. Hence, it's this complex, convoluted situation you're in where you you don't have that brain power anymore to solve the problem because your anxiety has taken over some of that working memory in your brain. I am not a biologist. Uh, I am not a neurologist. Clearly, does is there any connection between the part of the brain that would be doing that kind of thinking also be the part of the brain that deals with anxiety? Does it overlap? Yes, and there's a lot of research that shows that with uh, you know MRIs and brains when people are solving problems with numbers and the anxiety and how that can take over. So I'm not a biologist either. I look at it from an educational perspective, but definitely it's very physiological. And is part of this because uh, if I, again, using the example of writing an English paper, history test, I mean, there are, there is room, there's wiggle room in those where you could say, you know, my English paper, it, it, there's some subjectivity in there where math is pretty objective. You're either right or you're wrong. For the most part, yes, there's accuracy involved in mathematics, but not all problems have only one right answer. And I think that's what we want um, people to understand is that you can gain mathematics through multiple entry points and you can solve problems using a variety of strategies. Some might be more efficient than others, but I think that's what we want to support teachers and and students of mathematics to understand is that there's not only one right way and that will support the diminishing of math anxiety. 
the story that we're taking as the jumping off point, this four out of 10 survey, uh, it comes from, from the United Kingdom. I don't have any reason to think it would be different here. But the one thing it doesn't say, are men or women, are boys or girls more likely than the other to have math anxiety? There are gender differences, absolutely. And the, the irony of it all is that there's no performance difference. Uh, women and men, boys and girls, they perform at the, at the same rate. If you look at Ontario and our grade three, grade six, and our grade nine results, there's no gender differences. However, when you look at the questionnaire data, you know, where students fill out how they feel about math and how their attitudes are towards math, uh, girls end up being more, uh, neg- they have more negative attitudes and have more anxiety towards mathematics. So it, there is this gendered kind of societal expectation that boys are supposed to be confident and do well in math and girls aren't. Now, is that a, is that a physiological, is that a gendered thing or is that a physiological thing? Do you believe there are differences in the female psyche built in versus the male psyche or is that something that is put upon us as a societal thing? I think it's more societal. It's, it's expectations. It's the media bombarding you. It's, you know, societal norms where you grow up in a society, in a culture where boys are confident and they do well in the science and engineering and math topics where women and girls are the nurturing and they are expected to do well in the languages. So we've got to break down those cultural expectations and defy those norms and make sure that girls understand that they can be excellent mathematicians. And we could, I mean, we could talk about people, women, girls going into STEM, because I'm sure that spins off from this, the science and technology and engineering, but, and that's a long discussion. So I'm not going to dip my toe too far into that one right now, because it'll take up way more time than we have. But are you surprised if you hear this survey, are you surprised that the number is only 40%? that are anxious about math? Because honestly, I would have thought it might have been higher than that. Yeah, the survey, you know, surveys are good, depending on the sample size and how many, and not everyone is authentic in the survey. So <laughs> I, I, I expected, you know, 40%. And that's quite a bit. And there's been a lot of research in the UK showing that a lot of people are not confident at all. Some Some surveys are even higher. And some people would even avoid the survey altogether because that's a that's a sign of math anxiety because they don't want to do any sort of math um, understand math practice or involvement in any sort of math activity. So, you know, the people who they gathered for the survey are the people who um, might be okay with math and, and maybe not being totally honest. We only have 30 seconds and I apologize, but is this cyclical that, that it, because many girls are not confident in math, I'm guessing many female teachers are not necessarily as confident in math and then young girls see their teachers who aren't confident. Does it build a cycle? Yes, uh, there, ha- there is some research out there where they have studied primary teachers who are women and they have high math anxiety and their high math anxiety kind of gets transmitted onto their hmm. young girls, grade two girls, but not their, 
students who are boys who identify as interesting. boys. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting research there. So we do have to break the cycle and make sure that we have confident girls at a young age, you know, by, when they enter kindergarten all the way up to post-secondary, that they need to have that confidence and positive attitude. Dr. Mary Reed, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've probably heard lots about the fact that the Toronto Maple Leafs and Buffalo Sabres are playing an outdoor game at Tim Hortons Field next month, March the 13th. But it was earlier this week that we learned that the Hamilton Bulldogs will also be playing an outdoor game. So if you can't get a ticket to the Leafs and uh, Sabres game, or if they're a little costly for you because they're not cheap, there is another option. They will be playing the next night, which is the first night of March break, March the 14th. It's a Monday against the Oshawa Generals. The owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, Michael Landlauer, joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Hey, good morning, Scott. So I have got to imagine that to put on an outdoor game as the owner of a team, uh, this is not an inexpensive proposition, and you may or may not make or lose money on this. Why do what? What's what drives you? What drove you to say, you know what? I've got to have an outdoor game for our team as well. Uh, well, I, you're right. It's not it's not cheap to be having an outdoor game. I, I and we did it ten years ago. A little over 10 years ago with the American Hockey League. So I, I did it from scratch at that point. Uh, so I, I, I realized a lot, a lot of costs go into, um, building a rink and keep it going. And then the entertainment, the entertainment and then as well the, uh, and in those days it was the old Iverwind Stadium trying to deal with a, a stadium that's not really made for winter, uh, for fans, et cetera, uh, concessions and, and all. But this time around it was a bit, you know, a lot of things. And stars aligned, and we were able to uh, to look at, at having uh, uh, making it a little bit less expensive. Uh, why do why it? Am though? I doing well, it? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm doing it because it was an amazing experience. The first the first go around. If you look at the for those of you who who were there, you, you can probably you know testify that I'm doing it because we have an incredible team this year, uh, like great players uh, who are who deserve it really uh you know some of these players never got to play in the ohl last year because of the uh, pandemic and uh it just it'll make their experience as being a hamilton bulldog that much that much sweeter in light of what uh, what we've had to go through and then also for the fans you know our fans never got to go see the bulldogs last year uh, and it, it's the timing is just perfect you know in light of the province lifting lifting all the restrictions we're finally getting you know getting together as a community and, and life's starting to be normal again. There might be some who say, look, once you've had the Leafs outdoor game, this is going to be a, you know, a, a leftover, not a leftover, that's not a fair word, but it's not that you've had the big game and so this is sort of a secondary thing. Uh, I do wonder, though, how many people wanted to go to the Leaf game or and couldn't afford it or couldn't get tickets or whatever. Is that... Is that a lot of who you are targeting in this? Because your prices are certainly a lot lower than the Leaf game. Is this for those who couldn't get into that game to have the experience? Well, I think a lot of the people that are going to go to that to the Leaf uh, and Sabres game are uh, are season ticket holders. They had first access to it, and uh, going to an outdoor event. It's not just about the hockey game; it's about everything around it. So the purity of, of Watching, you know, a hockey outdoors, you know, back to its roots. 
this this I mean, and, you know, it's it's almost like a football atmosphere too, right? You're you're, uh, and that's a different experience than going to a hockey game. So, I think I think all in all, uh, uh, not everybody gets has has that opportunity. And there's only so many of them around. Uh, and yes, we had it in Hamilton, but it you know, you're right. In, in the the NHL game, unfortunately, is not going to you know we'll not have as many Hamiltonians uh, going to that game and experiencing it. Uh, firsthand, um, in light of the fact that you know the, you're, you're, I think the twenty-four thousand uh, seats, and uh, most of the people could be uh, Leaf uh, mm. season ticket holders would probably reside in the GTA. And, and the one really good thing about this is uh, those who remember that game you held in two thousand eleven. It was absolutely blisteringly cold that day. I mean, it was fun, but boy, it was cold. Uh, March might be a slight bit less frigid to sit there and watch a game than some of them have been yeah i mean probably not as cold as calgary or edmonton or some of these other no but i didn't i didn't see many people complaining maybe maybe it was the beer uh (laughs) or or the ones who were in the sun at least uh it was a a beautiful sunny day and but no i guess it's march yeah march 14th we should be uh we should be fine before we go, did you tell the players or did someone else tell the players? What's been the response of the players when they heard they were going to be having an outdoor game? Uh, I had told uh, a, a few players, but not the, the uh, I told the fans on the first intermission and uh, coach because he didn't want any, any distractions look, you know, with the announcements uh, during the game and all. Uh, actually told them right before the game started. So you'd have to ask, ask uh, coach. Uh, Jamie Key, uh, what their reactions were, were but uh, I know it's, it was quite positive. But like I said, it's it's a once in a lifetime thing, and mm. you know, for uh, and for, for some of our overagers, so what a way to cap off their uh, their junior career. March the fourteenth at Tim Hortons Field, seven o'clock. Uh, I know that tickets are available at Ticketmaster. I just looked and at the Hamilton Bulldogs website. Michael Andlauer, owner of the Bulldogs. Thanks for doing this this morning. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from five thirty to nine on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.